This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Equity Minds! I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is equity. Welcome back to another episode of Equity Mates, or should I say Yeehaw, partner. Welcome to Goldmine Investing, the Wild West of podcasts where we rustle up the toughest money and investment questions this side of the Mississippi. With the help of you fine folk, our rugged listeners, our aim is to saddle you up with knowledge and turn you into a bona fide financial cowboy or girl. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. What do you think of that one? I think that ChatGPT <laughs> is now getting you to do accents as well. <laughs> Gone early on the accents. Yeah. I know, I know. And um, that could get us in trouble in the future, but the American accent won't. That was uh, American Cowboy. American Cowboy. Yeah, gold, gold mine, actually. Gold mining. We're gold miners. Ah, okay. Well, if we were gold miners, we could have been Victorian. It's, it's actually a bit confusing be... because it finishes with yeah, we're, we're cowboys and cowgirls, but then it starts with the gold mining side. So I don't know. We're 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 Midwestern cowboys. Cool. Gold <laughs> gold mining was more hard west in uh, California. True. True. Anyway, anyway. Uh, that's anyway. not what we're here to talk about. <laughs> anyway, if you've just joined us for the first time, welcome to Equity Mates. Uh, this is a podcast that follows the journey of Alec and I as we learn to invest in today. And Bryce learns how to do accents. <laughs> yeah, I learn how to do accents. <laughs> but today, Ren, um, one of our favorite sort of formats is just deep dives on stocks and hearing new investment opportunities. And we welcome back to the studio a returning guest, Maroon Yunus from Fidelity. He's the co-portfolio manager of Fidelity's Global Future Leaders Fund. Uh, it's a fund that is a diversified portfolio of 40 to 70 small to mid-cap global companies. And Ren, today he brings two companies for us to explore. Yeah, two companies that I hadn't heard of. Um, I'm going to hazard a guess that you hadn't heard of either. No. Um, although we both have interacted with at least one of them. The two companies are Keisai Electric Railway, uh, listed over in Tokyo in Japan, and also Quanta, not Qantas, Quanta, uh, <laughs> listed in New York. So we won't try and explain what they do because Maroon does a far better job of doing it. Uh, but two interesting companies, he unpacks, talks about the reasons why they're in the fund. Uh, we also unpack the bear case and what would be some of the 
uh, things that would have to change for the thesis to break. So uh, really interesting stock deep dives. It is always important to stress when we do these episodes, uh, do not take these as buy, hold and sell recommendations. Do your own research. Any advice is general advice only. Maroon, Bryce or I are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. And so while we are licensed, um, it's important that you do your own research. That's it. And Ren, finally, this episode is sponsored by Fidelity. We do thank them for their ongoing support of Equity Mates, which allows us to keep providing you with free content to become better investors. So thank you to Fidelity. But with that said, I wonder how Fidelity are going to think about your intro. Why? What's that? Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't I don't, matter. I don't want to offend you, so I won't say anything more. <laughs> They'll love it. They'll love it. Anyway, without further ado, let's jump into our conversation with Maroon. Well, Maroon, uh, welcome back to Equity Mates. Thank you. Lovely to be back and lovely to, to, to have a chat with you guys. Now, before we kick off, I'm trying a new question at the start. It's a would you rather. So, here we go. Maroon, okay. would you rather be royalty 1,000 years ago or an average person today? That's actually a very good one. You'd probably have to go with uh, an average person today, I would have thought. Yeah, I think I'm on that vibe as well. What about you, Ram? Oh, that, no question an average person today. <laughs> yeah. Like, If you think about 1,000 years ago, just like hygiene. I know, just general living conditions. Yeah, No internet. Yeah. Quality of food. Yeah. Like, oh. Yeah. Just, no no yeah, stock market? Even like the amount of manual labor you'd have to do. If you were royalty a thousand years ago, you probably have to fight a war at some point yeah, in your you'd life. Have a, yeah, you'd have an expected yeah. ex- life expectancy of probably like 35. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. You wouldn't be able to invest in the stock market. No. <laughs> but if you're royalty, you don't need the stock market, right? You've, you've got true. everything available to you. That is, that is true. All right, well, Maroon, uh, we could we could unpack that for a little while longer, but let's not. Let's move on to the investing side of things. And uh, today, we're going to dive into two companies from the Fidelity Global Future Leaders Fund. And uh, we love having you on the podcast because you often bring us companies that we haven't heard of before, and today is no exception. Uh, but before we get into the two companies, uh, I guess we want to just take a take a step back, talk about the broader market and economy at the moment. Give us a sense of how you're seeing it because, you know, the last 12 months have been tough and it seems to be we're in a little bit of limbo right now. Where's everything going to go? So how are you seeing it? And are there any key thematics that you're focusing on at the moment? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting one. I mean, how I'm seeing it, it's, it's probably as clear as mud, right? Uh, <laughs> we it's It's honestly very hard. To be honest, if you asked me the question 12 months ago, you know, would I have thought we would be in a recession by now? And I'm, I'm talking, you know, predominantly US here. Um, would I have thought the US would be in a recession by now? 12 months ago, I would have said to you, yes. But here we are. And, you know, we basically seem to have, uh, you know, at least for now, avoided that. Whether we completely avoid it and this ends up being a mid-cycle slowdown or whether, you know, the, 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 the usual lags um, are a little bit more extended this time around. I'm not quite sure. I think there's, there's cases to be made for both. Um, so it's really, really hard. Um, and I think the market is, is continuously um, grappling with this question, right? Because you wake up some, some mornings and, you know, it's risk off and, you know, a, a whole bunch of stocks have been hammered quite hard. And then some other mornings you wake up and, and, and you know everything's up two or three percent, and it's you know soft landing again. Um, so I, I think the market really is sort of in this uh, bipolar mode. It doesn't really know which way it wants to go, and every new data point sort of um, gets it to, to jerk in one direction or another. So it's really hard, I think, to call right now. Um, and so the 
the way I'm trying to um, navigate is just by avoiding having to make a call because it's 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 quite binary. Um, and so if you position uh, one way or the other, if it sort of works out in your favor, obviously uh, you're having a good time, but if it sort of works against you, then it's going to be quite painful. So there's no clear thematics that I'm seeing right now, to be honest. Um, obviously, AI is a big theme, but AI tends to skew a lot higher up in the market cap uh, than, than what we look at because AI really is a scale game. So it really lends itself to, to the bigger guys. I think in, in the smaller mid-cap universe, there's probably more AI losers than there are AI winners. Um, although there are, you know, a few here and there. But you know, apart from that, there hasn't really been any major theme. So really, what I'm looking for is companies that are going to do uh, relatively well regardless, right? So companies where if we avoid a recession, you know, it's business as usual. They keep doing what they're doing, uh, and if we do end up going into a delayed recession, then, you know, that they hold up better than, than the average stock and then, you know, the, the drawdown won't be as painful. So for me, that's probably the safest way to play it, just given it's it's very murky out there right now. I think at the time of recording, um, speaking of AI, NVIDIA recorded uh, their earnings overnight and smashed expectations again. So <laughs> let the market run. Anyway, Let's talk about a couple of companies that are in the portfolio. I guess that you know align with that the thematic there of the all weather stock, and we'll start with now. I'm going to probably butcher the pronunciation of this, but I reckon you can get this. Kasi, Kasi, yeah, Kasi Electric Railway is the first company yeah. that we're going to unpack. The ticker is nine double o nine. It's listed on the Tokyo Stock Exchange. <laughs> uh, love their tickers yeah. over there, just numbers. And so what we want to do, we've got two stocks and we want to understand um, what they do, the bull case, the bear case, and then a bit of a discussion around the metrics when analyzing these companies. So Maroon, let's start with KSI Electric Railway. What does KSI do and, and how did you find it? Uh, yeah, so let's let's start with, I guess, what does it do? Um, KSI Electric Railway, uh, you know, the, the name sort of gives um, some of it away there. The legacy business itself uh, it's primarily a railway operator. It does have some other smaller businesses in there. Um, it's got like some department stores, some um, real estate businesses, hotel and travel services. But um, you know, the, the the big portion of what it does comes from this from this railway business. And so it operates this rail line, and it basically links Narita Airport to Tokyo City. And so um, there's two rail lines, uh, but obviously there's there's many other ways to get from the airport to the city and vice versa. You can catch a taxi or Uber or whatnot. But, you know, Narita Airport itself is one of the two airports, for those that don't know, Narita Airport is one of the two airports servicing, um, you know, the, the greater Tokyo area, um, the other one being Haneda. But Narita um, is the busiest airport in Japan by international passenger traffic. And so naturally, K-size rail business skews much more towards international traffic uh, and, and tourism. Right. So if we're just looking at the base business, the first angle here, I think, is a recovery following COVID lockdowns. So, you know, Japan endured a, a, a much longer lockdown uh, and shutdown than, than many Western countries. And I think partly is, is due to the older demographic profile. Japan does skew um, quite a little bit older um, from, from, a, from a population perspective. The official easing of travel restrictions uh, by foreigners into Japan pretty much only started from about... I think September or October of last year. Um, so it's relatively recent um, in, in that regard. Uh, you know, in addition, if you sort of look pre-COVID, China was uh, by far the largest source of inbound tourism uh, into Japan. I think they accounted for about a third of tourism into Japan. Um, and obviously, we've seen China. Yeah, that they've had a very protracted um, episode of lockdowns. 
In fact, I think group travel out of China was only eased um, a couple of weeks ago. I think it was the 10th of August where you were allowed to travel as a group. So, you know, prior to that, you could go off on your own as an individual on a business trip. But if you wanted to travel with your family, which is usually what you do when you're going on holidays, um, that was only eased a couple of weeks ago. Interestingly, the same thing um, uh, with Korea as well. I think Korea eased roughly around the same time for group travel. And Korea itself was also, I think, the third largest source of inbound tourism into Japan. So between China and Korea, you basically had 40 to 50% of pre-COVID sources of tourism. Uh, and they've basically been hamstrung in terms of their ability to, I guess, travel to places, including Japan. So, And if you look at China itself, passenger volumes from China into Japan are still only sitting at about 23% of their pre-COVID peak. So they're still down almost 80% peak to trough even today. So there's a huge amount, I think, of recovery potential to come back in. The rail business itself, it was down 35% peak to trough from a revenue perspective um, during COVID. And now it's basically come back to being uh, back to pre-COVID levels in terms of revenue. But this is obviously before China snaps back, right? So you can clearly see a line of sight um, when China starts to, to come back in big numbers and Korea. You can clearly see a line of sight uh, for this business to go to you know levels above pre-COVID levels. And I guess the interesting thing is, you know, why are they back to basically pre-COVID revenue levels, even though China um, is not there? And that's because other countries like the US are now doing record volumes into Japan. So other countries in the West have actually picked up their tourism into Japan. Um, and so that's why you've got this rail business now doing uh, back to peak level revenue, but the China angle is still there. Uh, so there's a huge amount of, of, of upside there. In terms of operating income, the business only recorded its first profitable year in FY23 post-COVID, and it had a you know a, a nominal um, operating margin of 0.5%. So it basically just break even. In Q1 of FY24, because these guys have a March year end, so Q1 for them was June. In Q1 of FY24, their operating margin was 9.8%. So you can see that nice recovery there. Just to put that into perspective, um, their operating margins pre-COVID were sort of in the 12, 13, 14% um, level. So you can not only see an opportunity for um, tourism and therefore revenues to come back primarily from China and Korea, but you can also see margins also trending up from sort of 10%, you know, up towards that 13, 14%. So that's, that's the first angle, I think. Now, in addition to this base business, which is its legacy business, KSI also owns 20% of another company called Oriental Land, uh, which is also a listed company in, in Japan. Now, Oriental Land owns and operates the, uh, the Tokyo Disney uh, Resort, which is uh, primarily made up of, of two theme parks, um, Tokyo Disneyland and Tokyo Disney Sea. It's also got a bunch of hotels in there as well. It licenses the IP off Disney in the US and it pays them a, a royalty fee, I think, of about 7% revenue. Um, the royalty fees that Oriental Land pay to Disney in the US account for about 10% of the revenues for Disney's parks, experiences and products division. So it's not an insignificant amount of revenue for that division. Prior to COVID, Tokyo Disneyland and Disney Sea, they were the third and fourth largest theme parks in the world, respectively, uh, and they were the biggest outside the US. So the, the biggest two theme parks are the Disney theme parks in, in Florida and California. Number three and number four um, are, are, are both uh, Tokyo theme parks. Just surprised that China, Shanghai Disney or anything like that isn't isn't bigger. That's fascinating. Uh, it probably will be over time, uh, but it's 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 a lot it's a lot more recent than Shanghai Disneyland as well. So um, Tokyo Disneyland, I think, has been operating since 1983. 
um, and Disney Sea was, um, I think it was in the late nineties, uh, if not two thousand, uh, when he opened. So uh, you, you wouldn't believe this, Maroon, but uh, I've actually done some uh, in-person due diligence of this company and been to Tokyo Disneyland. So uh, <laughs> well, there you go. Can it was a while ago? I was eight years old, but can confirm it's um it's big and it's a lot of fun. <laughs> good due yeah. diligence. Yeah, <laughs> very good. Yeah, so it's it, you know that they are the largest. I think there's also a volume angle there as well, right? So if you, if you sort of look at 2019, so pre-COVID, uh, you know, this this combined um, resort, the two theme parks were doing about 32 and a half million um, attendees um, in a year. Uh, during COVID in 2021, that dropped to around seven and a half million for the year. So a, a very steep drop. And even now, I think we're only back up to about 21 or 22 million combined for the two theme parks so we're still really about a third off the peak in terms of visitors so you've got you've got that volume angle there um, that can come back in addition to the volume angle uh, there's also I think a, a, a monetization perspective and, and so if you look at the prices to attend um, the Tokyo Disney theme parks they're about 60 to 70 percent below the prices to attend the same theme parks in the US when you adjust for FX which is crazy right given it's the same IP, the same characters, the same themes, the rides, etc. So it's a huge discount there. And even if you compare it to something like Shanghai Disneyland or Hong Kong Disneyland, the like-for-like -like ticket prices in Tokyo are about 10 to 30% lower than they are for their for their Asian neighbors. So this is adjusted for FX as well. So clearly there's there's an opportunity there for the gap in pricing to, to close over time. Now, historically, I think Oriental Land has is, is not been as aggressive on price rises. Uh, and, and I think part of that was, was due to Japan not having any real material inflation or wage growth. And so I, I think management there has sort of been apprehensive about pushing up prices sort of in the absence of wage growth. I think that's been changing recently. Um, you know, so about a decade ago, we obviously had um, Abenomics. And I, I think more recently, you know, the... Um, uh, a lot of stimulus um, via monetary policy has been coming in and, and we're actually starting to see things like wage growth and CPI picking up in Japan off very, very low levels. Uh, I think that's giving Oriental Land more confidence to raise prices and be more aggressive. Um, and indeed, they have they have been doing so. They've been putting up um, base ticket prices gradually. They also introduced this new pricing system in 2021 called dynamic pricing, uh, which basically varies the daily admission price based on what day um, of week or what time of year or what season it is. And the aim here, I think, is to sort of monetize the busy windows, but then also provide more uh, price sensitive consumers some sort of uh, enticement or carrot to be able to visit the theme park during the quieter period, just to sort of smooth out some of those peaks and valleys. I think another factor that's interesting here is they've got this expansion project called Fantasy Springs, which is due to open in 2025. I think it's an expansion part of Tokyo Disney Sea. Uh, it's based on Disney's fantasy genre. So think of things like Frozen and Peter Pan and, and Tangled. And I think it'll do two things for them. Firstly, it'll, it'll allow them to, you know, create another step change upwards in ticket prices. Uh, but also uh, I think CapEx will come down because a lot of CapEx has been going into this expansion project over the last few years. And so, you know, once it's finished, CapEx will come down and you'll get this huge um, increase in free cash flow from 2025 onwards. So I think if you add it all up, um, you've got a recovery not only in the base rail business uh, within KSI, but you've also got this price and monetization growth angle um, within Oriental land. Now, the best part of it all is if you take 
the value of KSI's stake in Oriental Land, which, as I mentioned, Oriental Land is listed um, in Japan, so it's very easy for you to be able to compute a value for that for that asset. But if you take the the the, the value of their twenty percent shareholding in Oriental Land, it's actually much larger than the entire market capitalization of KSI. So just to just just to give you some numbers. Um, in US dollars, I think it's a lot easier talking US dollars than, than yen because uh, there's a lot more zeros involved with the yen. But uh, Oriental Land, I think is about 56 billion US market cap. So you take about 20% of that, it's, it's roughly about 11 billion. That's the value, pre-tax value that KSI has. Now, given this is a legacy investment, if they were to sell it, you know, they trigger some tax. So let's say it's about 8 billion um, post-tax if they were to sell it. The entire market capitalization of KSI is 6.6 billion, and they've got this 8 billion post-tax, um, you know, investment sitting there. On top of that, you're also getting this profitable rail business thrown in there basically for free, right? And so this business, if you look pre-COVID, was probably doing about the equivalent of almost 300 million US dollars in operating um, pre-tax income. So you're getting that for free. So even if you subtract out things like group debt, um, you put a reasonable conservative multiple on, on, on this base business, let's call it seven or eight times EBIT. That base business alone could be worth, you know, close to two billion. So between the base business, between Oriental land on a post-tax valuation, um, you know, it's, it's reasonable to, to, to potentially see the assets being worth um, combined about 10 billion US and you're buying the entire thing for about 6.6 .6 billion US in, in terms of its, its market capitalization. So you're getting lots of recovery post-COVID lockdown plays, you're getting monetization plays, and you're getting a steep discount, all pretty much wrapped into one. I love that. That's that's fascinating. And the the value there, that's classic value investing where you can, you know, buy a dollar for fifty cents. And um yeah. it's uh it's a really interesting company. I guess um we were gonna we we're gonna ask what's the bull case, but I think you've done a really good job outlining it there. But I guess to extend that, you know, the you, your fund is the Fidelity Global Future Leaders Fund. I guess uh, how do you think about this company fitting in the thematic of future global leaders? And uh, along with that, you know, when you think about the future of this company, I guess what how big could it be, or like what what could the future be if management can execute? Well, I think from a future perspective, obviously, a lot of that is, is going to come down to Oriental land, right? So, I mean, you, you just look at Disney IP and, you know, you yourself have sort of been to, to some of these theme parks. I mean, Disney has um, an envious library of, of IP, right? It's just as a, as a content company, um, they've been able to captivate um, people for, for decades, irrespective of, of um, you know, what age group you are, right? So, uh, and, you know, over the, over the past sort of uh, decade or so, they've been able to add to that um, Star Wars and, and Marvel and the like. So I think when you sort of look out into the future 10 years from now, will people still want to go to um, Tokyo and visit um, a Disney theme park? Absolutely. You know, 20 years from now, will they still want to do that? Absolutely. So, and, you know, management are going to continue to expand. They've got multiple expansion projects over time. I mentioned Fantasy Springs, but, the, you know, the, the, there'll, there'll be more in the future. So I think in terms of it continuing to appeal to consumers five, 10, 15 years from now, I think, you know, that asset given its unique IP, uh, you know, it, it, it basically holds itself in, in really good stead. The rail business is the rail business, you know, it's, it's not a business of the future, but, you know, it, it exists, it, it does a job, you know, and, and until we find sort of quicker and cheaper ways to be able to travel, um, 
uh, you know, it, it, it's still going to do its base business. So I wouldn't really think of that too much as a, as a future leader, but certainly like the the, the access to uh, the, the Disney IP is, is probably the, the crown jewel. So Maroon, when, um, you know, always thinking about an investment, you need to consider what are some of the risks or what, what's the bear case? So can you just talk us through any potential, I guess, red flags that you have in your mind that you'll be keeping an eye out for that, or, or, or talk us through the bear case for KSI? Yeah, so you know, obviously, both KSI and Oriental Land, um, I think I sort of made it clear that they are at this point in time exposed to passenger volumes coming back in, particularly from China. So anything that could really um, thwart, you know, that recovery um, would be would be a, a sort of a bear case scenario. Um, whether it's another COVID strain and we have another round of lockdowns, whether there's something you know more nefarious like a real geopolitical tension episode between say China and Japan because you know Japan is sort of moving closer to, to the US and if the attitude of, of Chinese tourists change quite a lot towards Japan and they start to sort of view Japan um, you know more as an adversary maybe that sort of um, could could um, impact things also you know if, if management at Oriental land fail on on their attempts to better monetize their assets because they do have very unique assets and they are under monetized so so anything there I think would would probably be you know a, a bit more of a very signal it's also worth mentioning Oriental land itself is trading at very full multiples now I think it's it's sort of justified given the recovery potential there and and the pricing lever they have available to it but nevertheless it is trading at, at rich multiples so often you'll get a pushback on Oriental land as a standalone investment. The pushback would be uh, valuation multiples are, are pretty high. Now, again, I think it's somewhat mitigated um, if you invest via KSI because you are picking up um, KSI stake in Oriental land for a discount, plus you're getting the, the base business for free. So I think some of that valuation pushback can be negated if, if you do it via KSI, but it's still sort of worth mentioning. Um, that, you know, some people sort of look at Oriental Land, they go, great business, but I just can't justify the the, the valuation multiples. It's a fascinating one. Uh, as as I said at the top, one a company I hadn't heard of before, um, even though I had frequented a park that they invest in. <laughs> and I guess we probably caught the train from Narita Airport as well. So so it would have been one of two trains. Um, there's, a, there's another one owned by JR East, I think, and then there's one owned by KSI. So it would have been one of those two. Uh, testing my memory, yeah. it was what, four years <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Too long ago. Yeah. <laughs> so that is KSI Electric Railway, Tokyo Stock Exchange 9009 for people interested in doing further research. Maroon, uh, we're going to take a quick break here. And then on the other side, we're going to talk about a second company uh, that uh, is in the fund. Uh, and that is Quanta, not Qantas, but Quanta, uh, New York Stock Exchange ticker PWR. So we'll get to that uh, right after this. 
Welcome back uh, to Equity Mates. Today we're talking to Maroon Yunus, the co-portfolio manager of the Fidelity Global Future Leaders Fund, uh, and we're unpacking two companies in the fund. Uh, before the break, we spoke about KSI Electric Railway, and now we're talking about Quanta, a company listed over in New York. The ticker is PWR. So Maroon, as we always like to start when we're unpacking a company, um, if you can start general, tell us uh, what the company does and how you found it. Actually, I, I should mention both for KSI and, and for Quanta, um, you know, both of these were IDs surfaced to us by by analysts in our equity team. So so KSI was, a, was a, a, one of our analysts in, in Tokyo. Um, surface the idea to us and you know something like KSI for example they only report like their annual reports uh, and, and quarterly numbers in in Japanese right so it's very hard to be able to sort of sit here in Sydney not knowing Japanese and be able to research that. Uh, Quanta uh, reports in English so that's obviously a lot easier but that was still brought to us by uh, one of the analysts in our energy team uh, in, in the US energy team but you know what, what does it do it's it's basically a leading um, I guess specialty infrastructure solution provider sounds very fancy, but basically, you know, pr- provides services and solutions for the utility industries, for the renewable energy industries, communications, um, and then I guess legacy oil and gas. So, basically, it's an outsourced provider for um, electric grid companies. I so think of like uh, an AGL or an Ausgrid um, equivalent in the US, um, uh, renewable energy, telecommunications. Uh, oil- and gas so and the services that it provides are basically end-to-end so if you sort of think about things you know right at the start from things like design engineering all the way through to things like project management installation maintenance repairing uh, and replacement Uh, so very broad uh, services uh, business there now the the growth angle here again i think is is multifaceted so i think firstly if you sort of look at the US, uh, it wouldn't be a surprise to many people, but the US really has underinvested in its infrastructure uh, for decades, right? I mean, if you sort of think about, you know, following World War II, they emerged as, as the, the largest economy and, and the most powerful military, and they embarked on this big infrastructure program. They laid uh, a network of roads all around the country. They connected, you know, north and south, east and west. They invested a lot in, in things like uh, electrical grid infrastructure. And, you know, that paved the way for them to to just grow miraculously, you know, throughout the 50s, 60s and 70s. But I think, you know, over the last sort of few decades, they've really neglected some of that infrastructure. And so if you look at the requirements for uh, upgrading and maintaining the electrical grid, it's basically resulting in capex growth for utility companies in the region of 5 to 10% per annum. So these utility companies are having to spend um, quite a bit of money reinvesting back into the grid just to sort of maintain it keep it as it is but then also upgrade it you know for the future and we'll sort of touch on that uh, a little bit more but around half of Qantas revenues come from what they term repair replace and upgrade uh, type work so it's and 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 this you know um, being able to reinvest back into the grid um, upgrading the grid and maintaining the grid basically plays into that half of, of Qantas revenue bucket so if its underlying customers are growing their capex at five to ten percent per annum, that's going to bode well for for Quanta, who's who's an outsourced provider. Secondly, there's also a big push, you know, t- towards renewable energy, right? And so, like, irrespective of people's views on climate change, you know, some people believe in it, some people don't. Irrespective of that, we still have the issue of of finite oil reserves. So. Um, you know, according to, to many estimates, I think we have somewhere around 50 years worth of oil reserves left to extract, give or take a few years. So even if 
even if you um, don't subscribe to the climate change idea, we still need to pivot away from oil at some point in time, simply because we're just going to run out of that stuff eventually, right? So um, if you sort of think about things like the Inflation uh, Reduction Act that the uh, US Congress um, passed into existence about a year ago, the IRA as, as it's called, I mean, it's that single act committed almost $800 billion from memory to spending on energy, primarily on um, green and, and renewable energy. Uh, something like that is expected to triple wind and solar capacity in the US uh, by the end of the decade, which is a huge um, expansion. And so if you sort of think about Quanta, over half of their revenues come from uh, renewable energy solutions. They bought a business a few years ago for two and a half billion called Blattner, and, and basically that gave them exposure to that segment. And management think this particular segment can grow in the low double digit um, revenue growth rate. So we're talking 10 to 12% revenue growth rates for the foreseeable future. Uh, you know, to, just to put some different numbers around that Goldman Sachs estimate, it's gonna require something like 3 trillion in CapEx. Um, to meet net zero uh, emissions in the US. If you sort of think about 3 trillion US dollars, the Aussie economy in US dollars, annual GDP is about 1.5, 1.6 trillion. So it's about two years worth of Aussie GDP in US dollars that's required to sort of get to net zero. So that's that's the wall of spending in this space that's, that's uh, forecast to come. And even if you sort of think about something like EVs, just to sort of go off a little bit here, if you sort of think about something like EVs, it may not seem like a big change right now because you know right now you might um, just go to the service station, you, you fill up your car with petrol. In, in an EV world, you just sort of plug your car into a charger and it fills up. So from an end user perspective, it doesn't seem like it's that big of a, a change. It's just you know swapping out one fuel versus another. But if you sort of just think about what's required to get everything to where it is, in the current world, you've got you know energy companies, they extract the oil out of the ground they refine it because crude in its in its natural form can't be processed by cars. So it's got to go through a refining process. Then it gets put on tankers, um, you know, and then driven out to various service stations around the country. And then you, you know, you go to your service station, you fill it up from there. So that's sort of like the value chain for or, or the supply chain for you know getting oil into your car. If you sort of think about um, an EV world, you've got things like solar farms or wind farms, and usually they're, they're done in locations that are far away from metro areas. So solar farms, you know, quite often will be in deserts where you get like lots and lots of sunshine. Wind farms, a lot of them are in, either in remote um, hilly areas, like if you're driving towards Bathurst here in Sydney, um, you'll, you'll, you'll drive past the Woodlawn wind farm. Um, but often a lot of um, countries put them out, uh, out in the deep ocean because it's quite windy there as well. So far away from metro areas, You've got to transmit them over high voltage transmission lines to get them into metro areas. You've got, you've got substations in metro areas. From a substation, then the power goes out onto the regular um, electric poles that you and I would know, um, you know, the, the, the poles that we see in our streets. And then it sort of makes its way into our home and into our car. So it's, it's a very different end-to-end -end, um, supply chain for that tiny change right at the end, which is just substituting oil for electricity. And you know, our, our grids have not been built for that. They've been built to sort of turn on our lights and power our appliances and maybe heat our homes. But if it's also gonna be required to also refuel our cars going forward, then you know, there's, there's a lot more capacity upgrades required over time. So um, that's, that's, I think, a, a, you know, a long-term um, 
bullish angle for that quarter of the business that Quanta has that that you know is exposed to renewable energies. Another part of its business, about six percent, so it's relatively small, but it's growing quite good. Um, it comes from communications, and so think of customers in the US like Verizon, AT and T, uh, Comcast, for example. Uh, you know they're building out um, 5G right now. That's going to provide them growth with quite some time. And basically, by the time they're done, you know we'll be ready for 6G, which you know is likely to be around here in sort of 2030. So you basically finish building out one um, generation, you sort of move on to the other. And basically, that, that's the world of telcos, and that's sort of why for them, um, capex requirements are always quite high. And then the final part, it's about 20% of the business um, comes from traditional energy companies. So think of like oil and gas companies. And what Quanta does is, is you know, it, um, help, help them out in things like gas distribution, um, pipeline maintenance, uh, logistics management. It's probably not an area that's going to ex- grow as quickly as, as, as some of the other parts of the business. But I, I think you can still um, expect sort of mid single digit revenue growth um, going forward. So. You've got growing in markets, right, which is really good, but then you've also got another layer of growth uh, on top of that because right now, uh, roughly about half of the work is outsourced to third-party providers like Quanta, and the other half of the work is done in-house by some of these energy companies, some of these communication companies, et cetera. Um, That proportion that's being outsourced has been growing over time. So if you sort of go back five, 10 years ago, it was probably more like 40, 45%. Now it's about 50%. It's expected to continue to grow probably towards 55, 60% of the next sort of decade or so. Um, so Quanta can potentially grow even faster than some of these end markets as they get more and more um, work outsourced as a proportion. Um, Quanta, Quanta is the largest outsourced provider. They have about 10 or 15% market share, uh, which is more than the next three competitors combined. So if you add up competitors number two, three, and four, um, that's the size of Quanta. Uh, and, you know, remember I said half of the work is done in-house. So that 10 to 15% market share, um, 50% of that work is done in-house. So if you exclude that calculation and just look at the outsourced market, then Quanta's market share is, you know, closer to 30%, 25 30%. So it, it is by far the dominant provider in this space. And the other thing worth mentioning is about 95% of its revenues come from repeat customers. Um, so they don't have to go out every year, find new customers. It's the same group of guys, the Verizons, the energy companies, et cetera, that are just providing them with relatively sticky, um, relatively predictable uh, revenues going forward. So you've got a large and growing TAM, most of it exposed to areas that are not uh, particularly um, sensitive to the economy. Uh, you've got Quanta being the dominant player in that space. Uh, on top of that, you've got management that are committed, committed to improving the margin uh, growth profile. And, you know, I, I think you can expect uh, earnings growth to continue to outpace revenue growth. It has been doing so for about a decade. And I think um, you can sort of expect that going forward. Um, I think it's, it's, it's uh, you know, a mid-teens level of annual EPS growth is achievable over the next few years. It also converts roughly about 80 to 90% of its net income into free cash. So those earnings are not just sort of accounting gimmicks. They are, they do translate into real cash. Now, some of that will be reinvested back into the business. Some of it will go into M&A. I mentioned that they bought that renewable business, Blattner, for $2.5 billion, So they might do some of that in the future. But we'll also, I think, um, continue to see buybacks. So this company's bought back almost a billion dollars US worth of stock over the past four years. Um, and they also have a small dividend. Um, so, you know, capital that's not, it generates a lot of free cash, cap, uh, cash that's not going to be reinvested back into the business comes back to shareholders via buybacks or dividends. 
Uh, the balance sheet, I think, is in, in pretty good shape. It's only two times net debt to EBITDA, which I think is relatively conservative for a business exposed to these sorts of end markets. The return on equity, uh, they've improved it now, sort of in the mid-teens range, um, low double-digit uh, ROIC, a return on invested capital. Um, you know, heading into 2023, it was, it was trading at what I thought was a, a modest 20 times PE multiple. Um, it, you know, it is up quite a bit this year. It's up about 47% year to date. Uh, and the S&P 500 is only up about 14 or 15%. So it has seen its multiple expand out into the high 20s from a PE perspective. So obviously not as attractive today as what it was a few months ago from a valuation perspective. Uh, but I still think, you know, the long-term fundamentals are in place there. Well, no doubt a pretty solid bull case there, uh, Maroon. I guess we've got to ask and close out by asking, you know, again, what, are there any red flags that you kind of have in mind that you'll be keeping an eye on to see if this, if that bull case no longer stands? Yeah, yeah. So there's, um, the, from a macro perspective, I think you still have the risk of a recession. Now, I did mention this is probably not as exposed from an economic perspective as, say, something like consumer discretionary. But, you know, there would still be impacts from a recession if, for example, um, you know, the government uh, needed to spend more money on Social Security uh, and less taxation revenue coming in. Maybe they might delay some of those ramp up, um, you know, or, or spending on IRA or anything like that. Um, some companies might also delay some of their, their projects or, or just sort of extend them out. So. I don't think it changes, um, you know, the wall of spending to come, but it might change the near-term profile of, of that annual pace of spending. Um, so that's something worth keeping in mind. The other risk as well is is just in poor execution. So I did mention that about half of their business is, is repair, uh, replacing and upgrading type work. The other half is, is, is exposed to new projects. Um, and always, you know, with a service provider, new projects can, can create risks. Uh, because some projects that you tend to forego over budget and you might have to wear the consequences, et cetera. Now, I think it's it's a little bit mitigated uh, in Qantas' case because out of that half of their business that is more project, uh, new project focused, 70% um, of that half is actually towards smaller projects and the other 30% is sort of larger projects. So if you sort of think about the likelihood that a large uh, flagship project goes way over budget and, and you know, and, and they have to wear some... Um, big PL losses on 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 their PL for, for a year or two. The likelihood of that I think is mitigated by the fact that they tend to go for smaller, more frequent uh, projects as opposed to the big bang type projects. So there's a little bit of I guess mitigation there, but that's also a risk. Well Maroon, we have uh, come to the end of our time. Two fascinating companies uh, as a reminder for people, Keisai Electric Railway, uh, listed over in Tokyo, 9009 is the ticker. And then Quanta listed in New York, uh, the ticker is PWR. As I've said a couple of times here, two companies I hadn't heard of before, uh, but I'm certainly going to go and do some more research on. Now, uh, as a guest on Equity Mates, uh, you are automatically in the running for our guest of the year or expert of the year competition, um, where the community uh, get a chance to celebrate all of the experts who have given their time to come and share their knowledge uh, with the equity mates community on the podcast as a final question and, and as i guess a, a, a final um, shout out to the equity mates community uh, is there any advice any content recommendations or any actions that we should take to uh, i guess further our investing journey uh, that you want to leave us with today 
Um, or obviously, Equity Mates is 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 a fantastic um, source of content. I actually, I genuinely mean it. And I, I was listening to your your um, podcast the other day with Christopher Mayer, the guy that sort of um, you know talked talk about a hundred baggers because um, I read some of his blogs. Um, I, I would just uh, advise um, everyone to just continue to learn. This is this is uh, a lifelong learning journey. You never stop learning. Um, the second you feel like you've stopped learning, um, you go stale. So always go out there. I've personally been listening a little bit as well to a, to a, another a podcast called Richer, Wiser, Happier, uh, which is run by a guy called William Green. Um, he wrote a, a book of the same name, Richer, Wiser, Happier. He profiles some some uh, investors from around the world, uh, like Charlie Munger and Momish Pabrai and the like. Um, and he talks about ways of not only winning in markets, but also winning in life, how to approach life with the right mentality, um, how to cope with um, different challenges and stresses and things like that. So he's got a book, but also he does a weekly podcast where it usually sort of brings on one of these big experts and sort of talks to them about their journey and their life, et cetera. So um, I think that's sort of a very interesting one to, to sort of add to your list of podcasts to listen to as well. Well, Maroon, as always, you, um, you, you always bring uh, stocks to the table that are interesting and, and we love hearing new investment opportunities. A reminder that uh, what you hear today is is by no means a buy, hold, sell recommendation. We're uh, just uh, hearing what is interesting and and also as part um, part of the portfolio that uh, Maroon runs. So, uh, thank you so much. It's uh, an absolute pleasure to have you back on Equity Mates again. We look forward to to having you back at uh, at some point with uh, with more interesting companies. But uh, Maroon, thank you very much. My pleasure, guys. Always fun to be here and and to have a chat to you guys. So thank you for having me. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697.